bring in together for just a second. Father, we are dependent on you for the breath we draw, for the sight we have in our eyes, for the things we hear. Lord, this universe is held together by the power of your Son. We live and move and breathe not only in you, but at your pleasure. Lord, we come dependent on you this morning and ask that you'd use the truth of your word to reveal your Son more fully to us. Lord, I'm thinking specifically also that your Spirit would be speaking to each of us those things we need to hear, that, that your church, our hearts, our ears would be open to what you want to say to us this morning as we contemplate what your Son has done for us in bringing about a new covenant. We give you ourselves this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know why I'm just now getting around to reading uh, Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery. I think a lot of kids have read this in school. It's a book I've read about or heard or seen entitled before, but I just checked it, happened to check it out at the library a week ago. It was considered one of the most important uh, hundred books in American history about the time he wrote it, 1901. Booker T. Washington is not nearly as well known today as he was uh, a while ago. But he was a young guy without a last name originally. He was born a slave in Virginia. And until he was about nine years old, the end of the Civil War. And Booker T. Washington, as an adult, he had vivid memories of life as a slave. And at one level, he didn't know he was a slave, he says, until the day they were set free. He just knew this was life as he knew it. And he got some inkling that something was up and something was in the wind, he said, when one morning early he woke up and his mother was bent over, he and his brother, and she was praying for President Lincoln and the Union armies. And he started getting some sense, something's in the wind, something's going on. And he still remembered when a, a Union soldier stood on the steps of the plantation and read a document. And he doesn't remember the content, but he assumes he was hearing the Emancipation Proclamation. And the slaves at the plantation cheer, and all of a sudden a whole new life has begun. Now, Washington went on, he, they moved to West Virginia immediately, they took up a whole new life. And we'll talk about him again here towards the end of our, our time, brief time here this morning. But imagine that that Union soldier had gone to that plantation and had read the Emancipation Proclamation. And Booker T, or his mom, or his stepdad, or his brother, or the other slaves on that plantation had responded and said, hey, gosh, thanks. Glad you came. Nice to meet you. Tell President Lincoln thanks. Tell the Union armies thanks. Tell all the guys who've died, hundreds of thousands of men who've died, thanks, but we're content right where we're at. Slavery, life as we've known is a pretty good thing, and thanks, but we're fine just where we're at. We're just going to keep living under this old way of things. That'd be a hard thing for President Lincoln here, wouldn't it? Or if you were the parent of someone who had lost their life on the field of battle, and someone tells you thanks, but no thanks, the freedom that you've died to give us, we, we really don't need it. That the benefit that someone else has procured at their cost for us 
it's like, well, that's a nice thought, but we really don't need it. We're in a passage in the scripture this morning that talks about a benefit that Christ died to give us. And I tend to think it's a benefit we don't really get the... Uh, we don't think about it deeply enough. We don't realize its magnitude. And so in effect, sometimes we sort of say, hey, thanks, Jesus. Nice, but life as we know it is pretty good. We don't need it. Hopefully you have a study sheet with you this morning. This is the longest study sheet I've ever produced, uh, front and back of a full-size page. And the reason I've done that, we're in a content-heavy, detail-oriented a message this morning. And so you got to put your thinking caps on. I'll be checking you twice. Make sure your eyes are open. It's not because it's dull or it's boring, but it is detail-oriented. So I've, I've given you more notes than I normally do there. So you'll need to stick with me. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll pick up verse 3 from a text we've already read, and then verses 6 through 11. Paul continues, he says, um, it's manifested that you are a letter of Christ. We talked about this last time. You're our letter. You're our letter of commendation, Corinthians. You've been cared for by us. You're written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And as I go through this, you'll see on your sheet a comparison. And notice that comparison as we read through the text here. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and the difference between the two. God has made us, verse 6, adequate as servants of a new covenant. This new covenant is not of the letter, like the Old Covenant, but it's of the Spirit. The letter, the Old Covenant, kills. The New Covenant of the Spirit gives life. If the ministry of death, that's the Old Covenant, if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, think of the Ten Commandments, came with glory, and that's Roger Ellis on Mount Sinai. God's glory descended on the mountain when he met with Moses. Came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, and we'll, we'll pick up this theme next time. How will the ministry of the Spirit, that's the new covenant, fail to be even more with glory? If the ministry of condemnation has glory, that is the old covenant, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory, the new covenant. For indeed, what had glory, old covenant from Sinai, in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. That again is the new covenant. For if that which fades away was with glory, how much more that which remains is in glory. We've talked about this before, but Paul is confronting these Jewish interlopers in the church in Corinth. And he mentions them in chapter 11, verse 22. And so we're inferring some of what we get here, but it appears to be this. This Jewish element has come to the church in Corinth and they've said, hey guys, what you've got so far is okay, but what you really need to understand is you've got to live life under the old covenant. They're Jewish and that's the life they understand. They come into the Christian church and they say, hey guys, you've got to come with us and live back under the old covenant. And the term glory is used ten times in this, this context. They're probably saying something like the old covenant that Moses got there on that mountain, man, that's where it's at. That's glorious. And so Paul's got to come in and say, guys, he's going to correct several thoughts here, but the new covenant is more glorious 
There's nothing to go back to. And in fact, at the end of the day, you cannot go back to the Old Covenant, even if you want to. So he's going to correct their thinking here. If you look on your study sheets, he's going to compare and contrast two covenants here. And remember, the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel had lived with for about 1,500 years when this occurs. So a covenant is a formal agreement, something like a treaty. It's also like a will. This will come up again later. That is, only one covenant can be enforced at a time. And it stipulates the relationship between two or more parties. It says, in my relationship with you, or this nation with that nation, this is what it's about. These are the guidelines we live under. This is the covenant. So related to the old covenant that the Jewish nation had grown up with, it was made by Yahweh, that was the name he was known to in the Old Testament to Israel, made by Yahweh, with the nation of Israel, through Moses, at Mount Sinai, with the blood of bulls and goats, until it would be replaced by a second new covenant, which God promised in Jeremiah 31 and 32. That's the Old Covenant. That's sort of the big picture parameters of the Old Covenant. Now, if you read in the Old Testament, you'll know that this same law was reiterated with Israel in Moab uh, before Moses' death. That's Deuteronomy 29. And Joshua in Joshua chapter 8, when Israel gets to the land, they reinstitute the covenant again. They create laws and they, they pledge themselves to God again under this covenant. Now, <clears throat> we often think of the Ten Commandments. If you say the Old Covenant, people often think of the Ten Commandments. And and the imagery you get here when Paul talks about tablets of stone, that's what we're thinking about, right? Because Moses brought down the ten words from Sinai, the ten commandments. <clears throat> but the ten commandments, that's like the chapter heading of the covenant. The ten commandments is not the old covenant. The ten commandments is the introduction to the covenant. It's not the whole thing. So when you think of the covenant, don't limit it to the ten commandments. That is not true. This is a huge... This whole deal about the covenant, confusing for Israel and the early church in their day. And guys, it remains confusing for Christians today. The old covenant was not limited to the Ten Commandments. It was over 600 commandments and provisions and proscriptions for the nation of Israel. The whole thing, the ten words, that just scratches the surface. And there's all kinds of things that we could say about the covenant and life and our relationship to the Old Covenant and the New, etc. We're just scratching the surface here this morning for lack of time. So, the Old Covenant also, remember, when you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those four books, you're reading primarily the Old Covenant. So it doesn't start in Genesis. Exodus 20, Mount Sinai, that's where it begins. So as you read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you're reading the covenant. Almost all of those books are the covenant. So the whole Old Testament history is lived under the Old Covenant. But the whole Old Testament is not the covenant. It's the agreement. It's the legal stipulations between God and Israel given at Sinai, reiterated in Moab, and again in the land of Israel. It's about 600 commands in those books. That's the Old Covenant. Now Paul wants to contrast that way of life, life under the Old Covenant, with a New Covenant. So again, if you've got your study sheet, the New Covenant was made by God 
This gets a little tricky, but with Jews and Gentiles. When Jesus talks in the Gospels about a new covenant, he's referencing Jeremiah 31. The Jews had a reference for this. God had promised a new covenant. It's referred to also in Ezekiel, but Jeremiah 31 and 32, God promised, I'm going to give you one day a new covenant. Jesus is the one that made it at Mount Calvary, another mountain, Mount Calvary, with his own blood, and it lasts for eternity. I've listed references for you. We won't go into there this morning. You can look those up later as you please. Very different, very different. So this new covenant originally promised to the nation of Israel. And you and I in this age of the church that Paul talks about in Ephesians 3, we're not going into that either. We live under the benefit of the new covenant originally promised to the nation of Israel in which we now live and derive the benefit. We live under their new covenant. If you have the study sheet there, just look quickly at the comparison. <clears throat> The law or the old covenant, and when I say law here this morning, I'm specifically referring to the covenant, not to the five books, first five books of the Bible or to the Old Testament, but to the covenant specifically. So this is what Paul says about the covenant to those living in the church age. He says it's written with ink and it's written on stone. Again, think of something like the Ten Commandments. It's of the latter. It's this external thing that's written down and it kills. The Old Covenant kills. Verse 7, it's a ministry of death. It's engraved on stones. And it did come in its day with glory. No doubt about it. The law was glorious. Paul says it came with glory. Verse 9, it's a ministry of condemnation. At this point in time, it had glory, past tense, but now has no glory. And verse 11, it fades away. That's the Old Covenant. Compared to the new, it's written with the Spirit. Not written externally on tablets of stone, but now it's written in us, inside of us, on our hearts. It's of the Spirit. And it gives life. Verse 6, verse 8. Compared to the old, it has more glory. Verse 9, it's a ministry of righteousness. Verse 10, it has surpassing glory. And verse 11, it is that which remains. The new covenant remains. Now, the old covenant kills. Ministry of death, ministry of condemnation, has no glory. And it's fading away. Now, this sounds like God made a mistake. Like maybe the old covenant was deficient in and of itself, doesn't it? Because it sounds bad here in this comparison Paul's making. It's like, what's the deal, Lord? Why'd you give such a lousy covenant? But it's not the covenant's problem, is it? It's not the fault of the covenant. Look in Romans 7, if you've got your Bible or the study sheet. Paul asks in Roman rhetorically, he asks a series of questions. And one of the questions he says is this, Romans 7, 7. Is the law sin? Is the old covenant, is it deficient? Is there some problem with that old covenant? And his response to his own question is, may it never be, on the contrary. I wouldn't have come to know sin except through the law. The law pointed out my sin. I wouldn't have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me, coveting of every kind. And so in Romans 7 at verse 12, he concludes about the law. The law is holy. 
the law and commandment is righteous and it's good. There's, there's no problem with the old covenant itself. The problem was with us. So I covet, I just don't know it's a problem. God says, don't covet. And all of a sudden I realize, oh, I've got a problem. So it's not that the covenant, it's not that God's word in those passages in our Old Testament are deficient. The deficiency was in Israel, and it's in you, and it's in me. Because the law points out our sin. So sinners under the law, this is not a, not a formula for life. And that's the problem. That's why the law was a minister of death. That's all it could give. Because we're dead in our trespasses and our sins. And the law points that out over and over and over and over again. That's all you can get, you and I, from the law. We get death. We get condemnation. The law said in Galatians 3, I don't know if this is on your study sheet or not. The law said, do these things and you will live. Do these things and you will live. And the problem was we couldn't. God says, if it's all qualified under the law, under the old covenant, it's all qualified. If you do these things, I will bless you. But what's the flip side? And if you don't do these things, I will curse you. And life under the law was a curse because Israel, just like us, were sinners. And the law brought condemnation because it pointed out their deficiency. Not a deficiency in the law itself, a deficiency in them and in us. Now, we are under the new covenant and we are not under the old. If I say that to you or to most Christians today, there's no problem. You say, yeah, I get that. I'm, I'm part of the new covenant. But let me ask you this. If someone comes up to you today and they say to you, as they have me, Christians, do you believe in the Ten Commandments? What do you say? Because it's a loaded question, isn't it? It really means, do you keep the Ten Commandments? And I would say in a word, no, I do not. I don't keep the Ten Commandments, and, and I don't think a single person in this room does either. I don't keep the Ten Commandments, and neither do you. We don't. So, for instance, just one point, uh, we're here on Sunday, aren't we? If we're keeping the commandments, we blew our day of the week to meet with God, didn't we? Because the fourth word says, keep the Sabbath holy. And no matter what somebody tells you, Sunday is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. It's not the first. And it's from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. That's the Sabbath. Christians don't keep the Sabbath. Guys, we do not keep the Ten Commandments. That's just for starters. If you turn your TV on Sunday mornings, you'll see a lot of Christ, uh, excuse me, nominally Christian groups that preach from the law, Seventh-day Adventists among them. And you know where they go to tell you that you should be worshiping on the Sabbath. They go to the law. They're implying that you and I still live under the Old Covenant. Now, <clears throat> if you don't hear anything else I say about the Old Covenant this morning, hear this. The Old Covenant is a single document. The Ten Commandments are not the law. They're part of it. You can't part and parcel out the Old Covenant. It was a single binding contract between God and Israel. So you and I are not free to say, I am going to put myself under this part of the law. Doesn't work that way. Didn't work that way for Israel. Doesn't work that way for us. 
If you choose to live under the law, if you say, I keep the Ten Commandments, you must keep all of the law because that's what the Ten Words are a part of. They're not separate. People talk about the moral law, the ceremonial law, the Ten Commandments. Guys, it's one document. It's one covenant, it's one agreement, it's one will. You can't parcel it out as it suits you to do so. It's one thing. You and I do not keep the Ten Commandments. We don't. And here's another one for you. I won't ask for a show of hands. How many in here covet? Yes, we do. Broke another one. Guess what? We do not keep the Ten Commandments. Doesn't happen ever. We do not live under the Ten Commandments. We'll get... Hold your horses. Hold on. I'll qualify all this at the end, okay? So... I'm not antinomianism, not preaching that this morning. The law has some benefits, which we'll get to at the end. But understand clearly, you cannot as a Christian, we'll, we'll, we'll pursue this a little bit more too, you cannot live under the law. We don't, and we can't. We are under a new covenant. Galatians 5.3 says, Paul, by the way, Galatians and Hebrews talk uh, a lot. They developed this thought of Christians living under the new versus the old. That's what those epistles are about. The old versus the new. Paul says in Galatians 5.3, I tell again every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. In Paul's day in Galatia, the Jewish element was coming in saying, guys, you've got to be circumcised to be in a right relationship with God. And Paul says, well, this is the deal. If you get circumcised to place yourself under the law, you're committed to everything. All of it. Not part of it, all of it. Circumcision was just the doorway into the covenant. So that's things like, you know, check your clothing to see if there's linen and wool mixed. Because that, that breaks the law. Don't cook the kid in the milk of the mother. I've never even thought about that, that one when Kathy's cooked anything. That's part of the law. You know, and, and by the way, you know what else we'd have to do? We'd have to have a Levitical priesthood. That's part of the law. We'd have to be offering animal sacrifices. That's part of the law. All of that is part of the law. Paul says you don't get it. If you think you're putting yourself under one element, it's the whole thing. None of us keeps the law. We know that. We're just not sure about how that works out. We don't keep the law. The other thing is, you and I cannot live under the Old Covenant because we've died to that covenant. You know there was only one person in the history of the world that could actually keep that Old Covenant, right? And he did. So when Jesus comes to his people, he says, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. And then he lives perfectly under the Old Covenant because he's not a sinner like you and I. And then he dies as a curse on a tree to cover our sins, right? And the Jewish sins that have been committed under the old covenant. And he rises again with a new covenant, a new contract, if you will, in force. But there's only one person who could have kept it. He did. And then he died as a curse in our place. He took the curse of the law, his own death, for us. Now... Christians know Jesus died for me. Jesus died for my sins. 
If you don't know that this morning, Jesus died for your sins and for mine. Seriously, that's the deal. But not only is that true, if you're a Christian, when you trust Christ and you're born again, you have a new spiritual life that did not exist before. You're a new person, Paul says later in this same letter. You're a new person. You've got a new identity. That means you have a new source. So Paul says in Romans, he says that not only did Christ die on the cross for you in your place, taking the curse of the law, but he said when Christ died on the cross, you died with him. And you died to the law. You can't live under the law. You've already died to it. The sentence, the death sentence of the law was carried out on Christ. And every Christian was there, if you will, in seed form, in our spiritual originator, Jesus. We were there with him. And so Paul says, you've already died to the law. You can't live under it. You've already died to it. That's Romans 7, verse 4. Paul says of himself in 1 Corinthians 19, or 9, verse 20, he's saying he does all these different things so that any particular group will listen to what he has to say about Christ. And he says there, to those who are under the law, I have lived as under the law, though not being myself under the law. Paul did not live a life under the law, clearly. In Galatians 3.25, he says, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, the tutor there is the law. It's the old covenant. It's the covenant the Jews grew up with. Last along this line in Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. In chapter 8, Paul quotes Jeremiah 31. Excuse me, the writer to Hebrews quotes him and says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I'm going to make a new covenant. And he summarizes, when he says a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. The old covenant is obsolete. It's out of force. You can't live under it if you want to because God says it's no longer in force. And a covenant is an agreement between parties. If you say to God today, I'm going to live under the old covenant, you can't. It's not in force. It's like a will. If I write ten wills, the only one that matters is the last one. The nine before it carry no weight. If they're all legal wills, only the last one has any value. It's the only one in force. That's true of this covenant. The old covenant is not in force. You can't live under it, period. God says it's history. It's obsolete. Now, you and I live under the new covenant. And this is like our Emancipation Proclamation. You know, Paul says in Galatians, he develops that theme he says, even if you were a son under the law, you were almost like a slave or a servant because you didn't have the rights of sonship. But once you come under the new covenant, it's like a full grown son who has all the rights of sonship. It's like a slave or a servant moving from the house, the little house on the plantation up into the big house on the plantation. The new covenant is our emancipation proclamation. Now, life in the Spirit, and this is where it gets a little fuzzy and people have difficulty. What does it mean to live under the new covenant? It really means to live in a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. That's what it comes down to. The new covenant is the Holy Spirit in us. And this is the contrast Paul wants the Corinthians to see. The old covenant were these laws, external code, written on stone tablets. That's the old. And it wouldn't work. Because we were deficient. 
So now he says the new covenant is the Holy Spirit, God himself, in us, writing his law on our hearts. That's the new. And that's why theologians call this the age of the spirit. It's not the age of the law. It's the age of the spirit because the law, the covenant under which we live is the Holy Spirit in us. It's not an external code on stone tablets. It's an internal heart code that the Holy Spirit, God himself, present in us, is writing on our hearts. Um, for brevity's sake, I've skinned down uh, one of the, the main uh, issues to cover on this to just a couple quote. Matter of fact, I don't think these are on your study sheet. A lot of people say, if I'm not under the old covenant, if I'm not under a list of do's and don'ts, does that mean I'm free to do whatever I want? That is, does it mean I'm free to sin and do anything I choose to? And of course the answer is no, and Paul addresses this in Romans 6. Shall we sin so that grace may increase? Oh wow, when I sin, God's grace increases, then I'll sin more. No, Paul says. Or I'll sin because I'm not under the law. <laughs> no, Paul says. I mean, Romans 6 treats this. You can read that later. Life under the Spirit doesn't mean more freedom to sin. It means less sin. It means a holier call. Do you remember uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Kent's teaching through, do you remember that Jesus would say, you have heard it said, and he quotes, quotes some element of the law. And then he says, but I say to you, and what does he do? He raises the bar, doesn't he? It's not less, it's more. Well, in the age of the Spirit, think about this. In the old covenant, a Jew couldn't get close to God because God says, I'm holy and you're not. So, you know, only one person once a year could get inside the Holy of Holies and represent the whole nation before God. He had to be careful. They tie a rope on him. God strikes him dead. You know, we pull his body out. So that holy God who says I'm separate from sinners now lives inside you and I in this Christian new covenant age. Do you get it? To live under the new covenant doesn't mean a less, a, a, a narrower, a smaller threshold for life. It means an infinitely higher one, not lesser at all. Because now when we sin, it's not God's over there and we're over here sinning. It's God's inside me. And I'm sinning against God, the Holy One. It's not a lesser standard. It's an infinitely higher standard to live life under the new covenant. When Paul describes life for you and I under this covenant, he says things like this in Romans 8.14. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Christians have the Spirit of God. He says if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. Christians have the Spirit, they're led by the Spirit. In Galatians 5.16, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. See, if I walk with the Holy Spirit, I don't sin. It's not because there's the law written on the wall that I look up to. The Holy Spirit himself inside me, convicting me of what's right and wrong. And that new heart, I say, I want to follow you. So Paul says, if I walk by the Spirit in this new covenant age, I don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Same chapter in Galatians 5, verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit... That's our age. You're not under the law. Uh, hopefully a well-known passage to you guys. The fruit of the Spirit. You know, just so Christians aren't confused, he says this is what the deeds of the flesh look like. Anger, immorality, drunkenness, debauchery. You know, he goes through the list. 
But he says, when the Holy Spirit is living in you, this is what the fruit looks like in your life. And it's love and it's joy and it's peace and it's long-suffering. It's this great list that we all aspire to. That's the fruit of the Spirit of God living in us. That's not because we're obeying laws or rules on a board. It's because God the Holy Spirit is producing the life of Christ in us. And then last out of Galatians 5, 6 and 5, 13. This is what it looks like to live life under the new covenant by the Spirit. Faith working through love and through love serving one another. If you want to know am I living life in the Spirit under the new covenant the way God wants me to, compare your life to Galatians 5. Does it look like the deeds of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit? Is your life characterized by faith? Working through love or through love serving one another because that's what new covenant life looks like. Uh, Booker T. Washington, back to him for just a second. Uh, his early life, all he knew was was slavery. He was asked one time when he was a little older and, and he was free, he was an adult. And somebody said, hey, what was it like in your life when you were a kid playing? Or what did sports look like? Well, he's like scratching his head. What do you mean play? What do you mean sports? Sun up to sundown, he worked. He was a servant. This little guy, work was all he knew. He had one shirt. That was his clothing. They would load him on a horse with a sack of grain. And he hated this because the sack of grain was precarious on the back of his horse. He had to ride three miles down the road to the mill. To get the grain ground into flour. He said inevitably. The grain would fall off. No matter how hard he tried. He was so small he couldn't lift it back onto the horse. He'd stand by the side of the road. Until somebody happened to come along. Put it back up for him. And he'd go on. He'd come back late. Late at night every time. All he knew was work. That's all he knew as a slave. But check this out. So the Emancipation Proclamation comes along. He moves. He's got a new life. He's a free boy and grows up into a free man, right? Do you think he works less or more than he did as a slave? He works more. He doesn't work less. He works more. In fact, if you read his life, he's not only an amazing Christian, but he's this amazing example of someone with a passion that a law, an external rule cannot produce in you and I. He worked for the rest of his life. All he wanted to do was get an education. And no matter what it took, that's what he did. And he grew up, and you know, his burning passion was to give the black race in the post-Civil War United States a place where they could get educated and where they'd learn a work ethic. That was a whole big deal. Another thing about the education at the Tuskegee Institute, man, they learned to work, they learned trades, they got a great education. He wanted them to be productive members of society. And he, he didn't work less as a free man. He worked more. He worked tirelessly raising funds for the Tuskegee Institute till the day he died. He was on a fundraising trip. He got sick in New York, took the train home, and died at 59. I think he wore himself out. But see, that kind of passion... To serve his fellow man, the blacks in the post-Civil War United States, that was a passion and a love and a desire you don't get by giving somebody a rule. That was the kind of life lived out of freedom 
that wasn't constrained by a list of do's and don'ts. And that's what it should be for you and I to live under the new covenant. It doesn't mean we have license to live low. It means we're free to be inflamed, if you will, with God's will and call and His gifts on our life to God in His name under this new covenant in the age of grace, filled with His Spirit, to do the things He's called us to do. The new covenant doesn't mean we're lazy on our backsides. It means we've got a higher motivation. Faith working through love. Love is the highest motive. And when you're under the old covenant, your motive is fear. Do this and you'll live. Don't do this and you're cursed. Guys, that's fear. The new covenant engenders the motivation of love for our Father and thankfulness for our Savior. There's no comparison between the two in the motivation which covenant produces this passionate following after God. It's the new covenant. You can't get there in the old. Now, I'm winding down, I promise. Um, there is an appropriate use of the old covenant, for sure. You know, I often say we need to read our Bibles, meditate on our Bibles, memorize our Bibles. I am no way excluding the old covenant. The old covenant, like the rest of the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 and 11, Paul makes clear, he says, when the story of Exodus 32 and the golden calf Paul's referring to here, he says, these things happened as examples for us. Paul says that story 1,500 years ago about the calf and what they did there at the mountain. That story's for us because it instructs us and it teaches us what not to do. He says in verse 11, they were written for our instruction. He's speaking as a person living under the new covenant, not under the law. But he says the law was recorded for us. And it's an example for us. The law instructs us. Do I keep the Ten Commandments? I don't. But I know that God doesn't want me to attach his name to vanity from the Ten Commandments, don't I? It's not the covenant I'm living under, but it instructs me. And the stories under the covenant, they instruct me. The other thing they do, that same passages of the Bible, John 5, 39, Jesus was talking to people, the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, they knew their Old Testament. They knew the law. They knew the covenant. Jesus says there, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. The scriptures testify about me. Jesus says the law, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those books that we yawn through, they talk about Christ. They talk about Christ. When we read about the offerings in Leviticus, guys, we're reading about Christ. So when we read about the Passover lamb, that he had to be spotless, he had to be this old, he had to live with you this long, guys, that's about Christ. At the end of the day, it's not about a little lamb back there. It's about Christ. So when we read the covenant, we're reading about Jesus Christ. And we need to. And if Leviticus is tough for you, you know we need to grow up. We start with our Wheaties, but we've got to start eating some meat at some point, don't we? Leviticus might be meat. might be hard for you, but we want to get there. Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy too. Because we see Christ there. The same thing, Luke 24, 27, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. And he tells those guys, he says, uh, what did he say? Beginning with Moses, I think. He, he instructed them about himself from the Old Testament. 
so when we we can read the law it's not because we're living under it we still get instruction and we see christ in ways in the covenant you don't see him in the rest of the scripture so we need to park there just like any other part of the bible because we see christ the other way that we use the law i almost forgot this point is to point out sin and to lead us to Christ. And I've touched on this. Um, in Romans 7, 7, is the law sin? No, the law shows me that I sin and that I'm deficient. The law says don't covet, and I realize, wow, I covet all the time. That's a problem. God doesn't want me to do that. But also passages like 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11. Paul is critiquing the way a Jewish element in Ephesus uses the law, but he does say there's a lawful way. There's an appropriate use of the old covenant. And he says, it's not for a righteous person. The only righteous we have is in Christ, not for the righteous. It's for those who are lawless and rebellious. We can use the Ten Commandments to show others or other portions of the law, the moral elements of the law, we can use those to show ourselves or to show others we're deficient. We're sinful. We fall short of God's standard of righteousness. That's an appropriate use of the law. And last, Galatians 3.24, Paul there says the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. So when I read the law and I realize, man, I've blown it. I've not only blown it once or twice, I've blown it again and again. I get the, I get the idea. Lord, I can't get there. I need you to be my righteousness. And the law and the way I come to grips with the fact that I fail to live up to God's standard, it leads me, it drives me to Christ. That's the deal. That's how we use the law. It instructs us, it reveals Christ, and we use those old covenant ten commandments to either inform ourselves or others so that we're led to Christ because we see our own deficiency. Uh, Larry is going to uh, lead us in the Lord's Supper here a little bit in our worship time. You know, every time we remember Jesus in his death and resurrection, we are in fact celebrating the inauguration of the new covenant. The new covenant. If Booker T. Washington had told that Union soldier, that officer, hey, thanks, but no thanks, it'd be a real insult, wouldn't it? That it implied all that you did and the cost of all those lives and all that blood, thanks, but I don't need it. You know, when you and I try to live in any way under the old covenant, it's an insult to Jesus Christ. And whether we realize it or not, there's this proud element before God if we think we can live under His rules and somehow measure up. We're deceiving ourselves. Jesus died in our place because we could never be righteous in God's eyes. And it was Jesus' blood poured out for you and I that inaugurated that new covenant. So for us, the way we say thanks to Jesus Christ for what he's done is we live joyfully, fully engaged in the new covenant he's purchased with his blood. And when we remember the Lord in his death and resurrection... It's a way of remembering we are under this new covenant at his cost. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more forever. That's the new covenant. Your forgiveness and mine rests on what Christ did for us. 
So when you think about new covenant living, I just think we need to be thankful. You know, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah lived right around 600 B.C. He was taken captive with the destruction of Jerusalem, 600 B.C. You know, there were generations of Jews that wanted to live to see the new covenant age, and they didn't. You and I have the privilege of living in the age of the Spirit, where God hasn't put His rules on the wall, on a tablet of stone. He's given us the holiness of His own Spirit. He writes His laws on our heart, infinitely higher standards. That's the age we live in. It's a privilege to live in this age and under the new covenant. And so just to be thankful and to say, Lord, I get it. I'm not going to try and live up to an external standard. I'm going to be informed by the truth of the scripture. And Lord, I want to live and walk and be filled with the spirit. I want you to reproduce your life in me. That's life under the new covenant. The other thing is because the Holy Spirit's in us, we've got to take sin really seriously. Paul says two things elsewhere. One is in Ephesians 4, the other is 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, do not quench the spirit. You, you sense this thing that God wants you to do something. He wants you to say something. And you think about it and say, no thanks, Lord. That's quenching the Holy Spirit. That's saying no to God Almighty. Or we grieve the spirit when we sin. We have this holy guest. The holy of holies that was in Jerusalem in the temple is living inside each one of us. And sin is a serious thing. We don't want to grieve the Spirit. We don't want to quench the Spirit. So life under the new covenant, it's not on those tablets of stone anymore. It's on tablets that are our heart inside. It's an internal code. It's not a lesser standard, guys. It's an infinitely higher call. But it releases us, just like Booker T. Washington, it releases us to a much higher level of response to God than could ever have occurred under the law. Under the old covenant. We're free to be inflamed, engulfed by a passion to honor Christ in a way the law could never produce. So we're called to live up. Lord, I'm just, uh, I'm struck all the time by the uh, smallness in my own mind of the significance of Christ and your spirit's presence in me and in us. Lord, would you help us lift our eyes to see the grand heights to which you've called us. And the privileged position, Lord, you've given us as your children living life under this new covenant age, this age of the Spirit, which the benefit of Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, is made real to us by your Spirit's presence in us. Lord, help us to reflect that kind of love and that kind of life in Jesus' name.